it wasn't like it is now where you might play uh, you know, GAA and, and, and soccer and all sorts of other games as well. It really had a stigma. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Now, you're very welcome back. So, Sunday Paper Review is coming your way. I'll run you through the back pages first of all. And as you can imagine, pictures from Baku in the main. So, we have the mail on Sunday here and it's Stephen Kenny giving Callum Robinson a pat in the back. Azerbaijan nil, Ireland uh, three. Robinson on double as Kenny's men grab first competitive win. Have the Sunday Mirror here, and it's the picture this time of Robinson after his first goal and the week he has had. He has his two fingers in his two ears and blocking out all the noise. Uh, Vax of the net. There's a lot of puns in the papers today, as you can imagine. Callum helps Kenny silence critics with double after COVID row. That's Paul O'Hare there in Baku in the back page of the Sunday Mirror. And then the Sunday Times, they also go with that picture of Robinson, fingers in his ears, blocking out the noise. The inevitable headline, Robinson's double jab. Kenny salutes Robinson after tough week. Vaccine-free striker, say the Sunday Times, hits two. Is that, is that how he's to be known from now on? Vaccine-free striker hits two to inspire Republic win in Azerbaijan, but World Cup qualification dream is officially over. It is officially over now after the other results last night. Sunday World, this time they go for jab done. Great call as Robinson gives Kenny a boost. Callum Robinson double jab Stephen Kenny against the virus of negativity, said Roy Curtis, which threatened to take down the Irish manager. Back page there at the Sunday World. Same picture in the sun, Robinson. Hands over his ears, double jabbed. Callum after the storm as Robbo bags brace. Neil O'Riordan there in Baku on the back page of the sun. A Sunday independent go with Robinson smiling, running away, celebrating. Shot in the arm is their headline. Robinson double eases the pressure on Kenny Daniel McDonald this time on the on the front page of the Sunday Independent. Very happy to say Rory O'Connor from the Irish Independent is here in studio and we have Tommy Conlon from the Sunday Independent with us as well. Tommy, you can hear us there okay? Yes, Joe, thank you. Excellent. So, I know you've been writing about last night's win in Baku. Give us yeah. your uh, column then in uh, oral form. Well, you know, Joe... Um uh, I can barely remember a word of what I wrote, actually, to tell you the truth. <laughs> you, were that, um, you were that excited. <laughs> because, well, mainly because, uh, as Rory, I'm sure, can testify to, when you're, uh, when you're trying to file uh, something reasonably coherent uh, up, against, uh, uh, up against a fairly severe deadline, uh, basically, you're, it's just, you're, you're just you know, putting down what, what, almost what comes into your head and, and uh, just hopefully um, kind of stagger on to the next paragraph and the one after until you finally reach your quota and, and send it off. Off to your editor, and uh, you know the way they say, Joe. Uh, the the uh, newspapers uh, are the first draft of history. Uh, our newspaper reports. Well, uh, um, as a, a, a live report up against uh, the clock is it's sort of the preliminary draft to the first draft of history. So, I'd recommend it be uh, uh, taken with some degree of uh, um, uh, some degree of skepticism as to how how definitive it will be. Well, I'll remind you of some of your thoughts, if that's all right. So uh, you conclude by uh, summing up the performance. You save the team. They are still all stuck awkwardly between the aspiration to sophistication and the practical difficulties of achieving it. Ireland were a long ball team last night and intermittently a pass and move team too. They are betwixt and between. 
Uh, you talk about how for the first half hour between, uh, or sorry, for the half hour between Robinson's first and second goals, Azerbaijan were mostly in charge of the flow of the game, but being fairly powder puffed themselves in attack. Ireland's back three, led once again by the commanding Shane Duffy, were able to cope with the ordnance. And then you say at the other end, uh, the visitors had a string of chances throughout the second half to make the game safe. Obviously, they didn't take those chances. 18 chances in uh, total in total for uh, Ireland against Azerbaijan. It's been some time since we had 18 chances. So what did you make of it then, Tommy, speaking now about the game? Um, mixed, Joe. Um, uh, because a 3-0 win, you, you, at one level, you can't complain about that at all. And on the other hand, then you look at the performance and... Um, if Callum Robinson didn't get man of the match, Gavin Bazunu could have got it or Shane Duffy. And um, it was an open game. They had a lot of chances too and half chances and crosses and a lot of possession. And um, so I, I know, we all know that the result ultimately is is kind of what dictates the agenda and the analysis, but uh, um, good to get the win and um, uh, good performance, I suppose you'd have to say, away from home. Uh, but there's so many caveats between the quality of the uh, opposition and and uh, the quality of her play, especially in between the first and second goal, goals. Um, that kind of a kind of a mixed bag. Uh, but I suppose finally, ultimately, sort of uh, happy enough for the players because they're an honest bunch, and for the manager who's been through a hell of a rough 12 months and uh, he was entitled to get a break and he got it last night. Rory, Dan McDonald was there in Baku. He's alongside Tommy's piece here on the page I've opened on the Sunday Independent. Mm. He says, the irony is that Ireland have played better under Kenny without getting the rewards they enjoyed here in the surreal sounds of the deserted Olympic Stadium where 200 or so away fans made most of the noise. Uh, to declare it a, a corner turned would be as knee-jerk as some of the hysterical reactions to disappointing days in Kenny's 17-game tenure. He calls it uh, another work-in-progress display. Yeah, I think that made a similar point after the Serbia draw as well. That that you know that that was a night where Ireland were got a slice of luck that had been denied to Kenny on several occasions earlier in this camp his campaign. And Dan is, seems determined that whatever his personal wish maybe for for Kenny to succeed, um, he's trying to be as balanced as possible. And I, I really respect that because you know I think he's taken a fair bit of flack on social media from from those who don't think Kenny's the right man um, and he's trying to be as even you know as, as even handed as he can I mean Ireland that could have been a 7-2 match last night you know it was a really really strange game and I do think what Tommy said at the start forms an awful lot of what we, we read I think a lot of the analysis is predicated on what happened before half time those kind of half an hour because that's how you construct these things when you're working against the deadline you kind of watch the first half you put together the bulk of your piece at half time and then you try and kind of keep up with the play after half time while trying to file at, at full time and as the game went on Ireland became more and more comfortable and, and if they'd taken the chances they created they really you know we could be looking at a you know 5-1 or, or, or a much bigger win ultimately they were lucky to have the nil but they were probably unlucky to have the three so um, I think they'll take it it's it's you know, I will be on. I'm on the Stephen Kenny side of this argument. I'm enjoying this this era. I believe it it is worth long worthy of long term investment. I come from a from a League of Ireland perspective, and I I am very much in that camp. So I you know I may as well lay that on on the table. But what I saw last night was a relatively young Irish team playing for their manager 
and creating one of the best goals I've seen Ireland score in the first half and then creating lots of chances away from home in the second half against a team they should be beating so yeah I wouldn't be saying his job should have been on the line either way last night and uh, you know it's it's like you know, there's kind of immediate debate going on around whether he should stay or go, and that was kind of the big thing coming into this. But really, we shouldn't be making judgments on you know games against Azerbaijan, which should be over the course of this whole thing. Which sometimes football isn't as as kind of um, I don't know rational as, as all of that. No, Eamon Sweeney then on the next page, for instance, unwise to get too carried away but a win still a win is the headline in beating Azerbaijan Ireland were only doing what Luxembourg twice Belarus Moldova and Qatar have done in the past year so the night's evidence will have to be treated with extreme caution he does have one line about Callum Robinson Robinson's big night was above all a testament to the magnificent motivational powers of Joe Duffy the RTE host may have noticed that the West Brom strikers two goals brings his international tally to three which is coincidentally treble the amount of brain cells used by the average live line caller uh, it was a point Eamon Sweeney his outro made. as well I mean, appeals to the teenager that's still in me somewhere in a week that, which began with the Ireland manager talking about virility it was good to see the Ireland team overcoming their usual impotence in front of goal yeah. stiffer test lie ahead yeah uh, so um, I think all I mean, the teenagers within us kinda, can enjoy that one so unwise to get too carried away I think is the general sense I think uh, for Ireland's 18 chances Tommy Azerbaijan had 16 chances you would say the Irish chances were better and it's been a while since Ireland could have scored six, seven goals realistically if they'd taken those chances. That maybe is still the nagging concern going forward. If you take the goals, Robinson's first one was absolutely phenomenal. I would say it's one he's unlikely to repeat too often. That's not going to be the type of goal we'll score all that often. Nice passing move in the build-up to it, admittedly. Second goal, keeper should have saved it. Third goal, header's a header into the box. We're going to score those from time to time. So... You think of all the really good chances Ireland did create. There is still that nagging concern. They didn't take many of them. No, but um, what we've known, I mean, uh, uh, a bit disappointing, yeah, uh, I mean, uh, that we didn't take more. We weren't a bit more clinical about it. But look, at that, that's, that's been an ongoing theme for years and long predates Stephen Kenny, doesn't it? It's almost... Um, you know, is, is it is it actually out of beyond the manager's control? I mean, that specific case of an absolute uh, elite level finisher, or even even a next level down from elite level finisher. You know, and uh, that's going to be an ongoing issue, isn't it? Irrespective of who's who's in charge. Albeit that we did show a bit more creativity last night, and uh, I thought a bit more. Uh, um, adventurous in attack and getting more numbers forward and uh, trying to thread passes through and overall actually actually looking a bit more you know a, a, a bit more potent in attack than than usual than usual and and if you get three goals you know irrespective of whether you've missed you know a half a dozen of the chances you've still got the three goals and you've still got the win and and yeah, I, it wouldn't it, it wouldn't surprise me or be a major issue with me one way or another because we, we don't expect them to be prolific right now, do we? No, that, no, that's true. And I suppose, Rory, the flip side to what I said, I mean, at times Ireland have had a lot of very nice possession in their own half and not created very many chances, whereas last night they had about 36% possession, I think, all told, but looked far more potent, as Tommy says. Yeah, and they didn't play the kind of high-wire act in their own box as much as they had done in the mm-hmm. Serbia game I was at the Serbia game and, and it's like it's 
absolutely exhilarating when Gavin Bazuna's trying to play little, like in a, in a good and bad way because Bazuna's trying to play balls to Shane Duffy and he's getting it back and he's trying to you know play a pass player like it's it, it's really difficult to do and but when they play through the lines it's, it it can be very successful but last night they were as Tommy pointed out in his piece and, and on air they did were content to go more direct they'd obviously seen something in Azerbaijan that um that that, that they felt that was the right way to go about them and it, one of the lies about it's one of the myths about Stephen Kenny it's one he kind of perpetuated at the start himself and uh, is that it's, it's, it's going to be total pure football all the time Stephen Kenny has been a very pragmatic manager pragmatic manager over the course of his time in charge he's even adapted his shape completely since he's taken over like he never played three at the back as Johnny pointed out on air earlier on and he, if he sees a tactical weakness in Azerbaijan that if we go direct we'll, we'll get success he'll do it like because he, you know and if we're going to score you know, Shane Duffy should have scored a header last night he he scored a couple of headers and this if that's your best route to goal he'll take it because he's not a he's not a stupid man who's going to put idealism ahead but he almost gave, made himself a hostage to fortune at the start by setting himself up as kind of we're going to change the way Ireland play so much but there, I thought there there was a coherence to the way they attacked that maybe was lacking under previous eras I think they created chances that um, Irish teams of the past wouldn't have created taking them is another matter I think if you put Robbie Keane into that team we could have a very good chance. Yeah. Ultimately, our best players are in the back, the back five. Yeah, first 15 minutes, Ireland played great football, by the way, and then it became more of a counter-attacking threat. Paul McGrath has been critical of late of Stephen Kenny. Needless to say, more positive today in the Sunday world. Now, that's more like it is the headline. He says, Ireland play with a little bit of anger, with a little bit of fire in their bellies. Uh, we were much the better team, he says. I truly wonder if the Irish manager could have survived losing that match. So... Uh, he certainly thought it was good performance. Paul McGrath, much more like it. I guess you couldn't think much else. Tommy, I know you like Dennis Walsh's match report. Well, I mean, um, um, it, it's just that, uh, just from a professional point of view, uh, I'm always interested to see how um, how my colleagues, how you know, how we all deal with the with the live situation. And uh, I've said it before: be it rugby, hurling, Gaelic football. Uh, soccer, whatever it is, you know, it's um, how well have the lads done under pressure? And and Dennis Walsh is, I think, one of the masters of the live report. He has this, uh, I think, rare enough ability to write a really polished piece under the gun, under the pressure of the clock, almost, and it has the sort of the poise and 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 sort of um, kind of. Um, it has a sort of a panache about it that looks like it was written he had all day to write it and uh, and uh, he does it consistently very very well and I just liked his uh, a couple of his lines here including the intro as you say Joe uh, where he says for a few days last week the spotlight on Callum Robinson must have felt like a dentist's lamp he opened his mouth the drill went in should he have kept his mouth shut? Why? He was asked a straight question and gave a candid answer. It's just, it's, to me, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an image, it's a metaphor, and it's excellent. Um, conjured up pretty much on the spot last night. And, and deeper into his, into his report then, he has a lovely line about Robinson's second goal. The shot had the kick of a lagger Shanley. Uh, of a lagger Shandy, but it took a significant deflection and... Uh, Mago Medalayev in the Azerbaijan goal made a dive like Sylvester Stallone in Escape to Victory. So uh, I kind of envy that uh, uh, creativity and um, talent and the ability to file it under pressure. And I, I, I suppose that's that's what uh, once again kind of uh, tickled me about a, a Dennis Walsh live match report. 
the Callum Robinson thing is interesting is it a, I, like th- I think the papers have refrained from the answering the critics line because they're two very different strands you know um I suppose life was made easy for everyone writing last night that Colin Robinson scored early and it was clearly going to be the story, the way he celebrated and everything. But um, I did see it on social media a fair bit last night that, you know, where are the critics now? I mean, it's 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 possible. It shouldn't be... It's obvious to say it's possible to think that Colin Robinson's view uh, views on vaccination are uh, irresponsible and immature, but also that he's a good footballer who took his goal very well last night and played very well. And I think, um, I, I, I think it's entirely bizarre if you think him scoring two goals is somehow vindication of his stance during the week. They're completely yeah. separate. Yeah, it's mad. Like, totally I was, but I saw people like you know people who have good standing in the world who who, who came out with that stuff last night. And I was yeah. like, what are you on about? Like Dan makes that point in his uh, Sunday in the report. You know, acts on the football pitch don't really uh, acts on the football pitch don't really silence critics of a player's stance on public health matters. But teammates of Robinson felt sympathy for his position, which is which is fair enough that he you know no one will, no one wants their their, their teammate to be. Um, on li- the subject of a live line debate for for an hour, but it does seem like quite quite a tight group now this Ireland team, um, mm. which which is interesting. Mm. They seem to rally behind them, and and them feeling like their backs against are against the wall is is no bad thing. Yeah, like it does, Tommy. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Jump in. I was. I, I'll just take this question and then go wherever you wanted to yeah. go. But further to Rory's point, it does feel like when you're trying to adjudicate over Stephen Kenny's future. What does feel the case is that the team is improving at the moment. This is not like a team losing faith in the manager or things are starting to crumble. It is going the other way. Oh, I, I, I think there's a, an awful lot of evidence for that, that there's a huge solidarity between the manager and the players and uh, and that they're a united bunch and, and um, um, they're genuine and, uh, and and they buy into what he's trying to do um, we've heard Matt Doherty say it a few times too in, uh, in the last few weeks as well. Um, and the evidence is there on, on the pitch as well. Uh, there, 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 there seems to be a, a tight-knit bunch. And, and maybe that goes on to Rory's point about Colin Robinson and uh, his teammates, I suppose, felt sympathy for him, felt sorry for him that he was at the eye of the, that particular media storm last week for a while. And uh, that's 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 uncomfortable for anyone and maybe he like he's living inside his bubble as professional sportsmen are and sometimes the public uh, are occasionally flabbergasted at the sort of different mores or standards or attitudes that sometimes emerge from professional sport be it an american sport or the premier league and uh, the, the live line audience last week there was genuine and I would have thought uh, understandable sort of mystification as to how a guy who who got COVID-19 not once but twice um, uh, totally rejected the vaccine option. Uh, when 92% of the population is vaccinated, uh, there's going to be a, a, some level of consternation about about a, 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 about someone, a player coming out and naively, I suppose, at making his admission uh, at a at a press conference, and I guess it it's some, it, it illustrated that kind of chasm between the what the civilian population, if you want to call it that, and elite elite professionals, and yeah. and the bubble that elite professionals live in, and sometimes they're not really connected with what's going on in in mainstream society, and that was one example of it last week, you could say. Eamon Sweeney tries to grapple with that very point. Here's to you, Mr. Robinson, back page of the Sunday Independent. So 
I mean, he does make the point that like this was OTT during the week. Sometimes it seems the majority mm. of the Irish population have been COVID shamed at this stage. We must surely be approaching herd immunity between, as he says, the people who queued for chips and hoth right back to house parties, GA. He lists all the various people who've been attacked at various stages over the last 18 months for breaking COVID guidelines. He says of the role model argument being thrown at Robinson with over 92% of the Irish adult population having received this vaccine already uh, Robinson's revelation changes nothing the minds of vaccine sceptics were made up a long time before last week he goes on then to talk about what's going on in professional football why is the rate of vaccine uptake so low in professional soccer compared to the general population he says the education and social background of players has been mentioned but this idea comes perilously close to snobbish condescension you don't need either a university degree or a middle class upbringing to realise that taking a vaccine during a pandemic is a good idea. Many of the Irish 92% have neither. And then I thought he makes a, a decent stab at one theory. I mean, there's various reasons as to why it's happening in dressing rooms. There's definitely listening to some of the club doctors. There are definitely influential players in certain dressing rooms who set a tone and the others follow because we're seeing in other dressing rooms i.e. Leeds and Liverpool effectively 100% of the players are getting vaccinated whereas in other dressing rooms it's far less than 50 so the club doctors are coming out saying that some of the senior players get an idea into their head are mentioning some of the conspiracy theories and the younger players uh, follow but Eamon Sweeney makes another interesting kind of observation about the unusual nature of professional soccer. It's an enclosed world and he talks about talented inhabitants have achieved success by single-minded focus on one specialised objective and regard themselves as belonging to an elite. And that may make them peculiarly susceptible to the lure of conspiracy theories. He says a decade ago in Silicon Valley, so we're not talking right-wing here types on Facebook, uh, Silicon Valley, there was a real anti-vaccine movement. And so he goes on to say, elite soccer, in some ways like Silicon Valley, a world dominated by successful and somewhat arrogant young men with limited knowledge of the world elsewhere, the idea of being privy to some esoteric truth hidden from lesser mortals as a special appeal for such young men, whether in Sandwell or San Jose. I do think there's something in yeah. that as well. There is a touch of arrogance about some of the professional sports people. and. Uh, again, it's hard to generalise, Rory, but uh, who knows as to why it's so prevalent. Well, in Alison Rudd has a... I didn't flag this with you beforehand, Joe, but it's, I read it since, uh, since I was talking to you. Alison Rudd has a, a short analysis in the Sunday Times where she tries to draw the COVID vaccine, dementia in football and uh, Squid Game into one kind of uh, quite general piece. Squid Game, piece, the Netflix? Yeah, which I haven't seen yet, but I watched I've the first trailer. episodes last night. Yeah. Go on. I'll Sorry, I'll yeah, we'll, we'll come back to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, well, her main thrust of her point is basically that um, footballers don't want to get the vaccine because they think they might get ruled out of training for a couple of days. And if they do, they might lose their place. And if they lose their place, they might lose their contract at the end of the season. And it's a much more basic and actually more understandable reason why they why they don't want to do it that you know for all the talk of virility and, and the points that Eamon makes there which I'm, I'm sure some are getting getting that kind of you know they're spending a lot of time on their phones and they're getting bad information fundamentally that, that there's just a fear and, and she also says this is why players don't talk about the concussion issue um, you know the fact that the players, you know, old, older players, and probably the same in rugby, you know, that the players are not talking about in dressing rooms because they don't want to think about what's coming down the line. Because ultimately, if they if they walk away from the game, they won't be getting the, the be able to pay the mortgage at the end of the year. And it's a much more understandable reason. I'm not really sure how she brings Squid Game into it. I can't remember, but th that's the fundamental thrust of her point with regard to what we're talking about. Um, 
and I think it's actually that makes a bit of sense that if, if you if you have if you have an adverse effect from the vaccine and you miss two three days of training and you miss the game against Norwich at the weekend and, and the guy who comes in plays well say Radamida for example or you know he, he sits it out Timo Pukki plays well he doesn't get in for four or five weeks suddenly everything's we've seen it with all, a lot of Irish players who've dropped out of teams and it's actually a way more relatable reason why they're not doing it I, I still think they should do it but um, I can understand that more than I can understand a, a, um, a conspiracy theory it seems to be very vague like Martin Ziegler had a piece in the Sunday Times couple of weeks ago now and he was talking about one dressing room where in particular Matt Letizia's Twitter account had really caused pause for thought yeah. they're sharing it around from each other so with each we're other renowned for all just and I mean all just well indeed <laughs> so definitely the conspiracy theories have got into a few heads and then they're probably influential players and there's a degree of well look I've come this far do I want to take a risk but no. other leagues have, have stepped in and gone right you can't do this if you don't, yeah. if you haven't got a certain rate of vaccination in, in the NFL and the NBA there's, there's punishments if your squad isn't vaccinated the uh, Premier League is opting not to do that if Callum Robinson was playing football in Ireland if you want to go to a bar or a restaurant you need to be vaccinated to go in whereas in England that's not the case as far as I'm aware so like there is more kind of societal re- pressures to do it here I'm sure some of the 90 whatever percent here have done it because they don't want to go out you know I'm sure some of the younger people just say this is my ticket into a pub I'm going to get it oh, done yeah. so you know the, the, maybe the incentives are better here than they are in the UK the, maybe the, the incentive to do it just isn't I, especially because he's, he's got immunity like he's had it twice I know he's, he didn't have immunity from the first one didn't last very long but yeah. you know, that's how, that's how, that, that I presume is how he's looking at it Well I did see um, figures Tommy where in the football league so the divisions outside the Premier League obviously in the past month they had gone from a vaccination rate of 18% and jumped right up to 49% so maybe mm. slowly but surely the message will get through like Jurgen Klopp last week spoke very vociferously about it and so you would think yeah. you know the if say it's the anti-vax movement or say it's uh, other reasons that had taken hold but certainly it's been chipped away at now I would think over the last couple of weeks Do you know another thing factor too that we mightn't under that we might ought not to underestimate maybe is how uh, narcissistic professional sports people are about their own bodies uh, sort of a, a paranoia about their health and well-being because it is the instrument by which they make their living and they uh, and they become sort of uh, we know this from years of autobiographies and memoirs and all sorts um, every niggle every strain and they become sort of amateur medical authorities on their own body from head to toe and and there's a kind of ongoing sort of paranoia about niggles and strains about anything about how their body is functioning day by day because as i say it is it is the instrument uh, towards their wealth and their careers and all like that and uh, they're rel- routinely medically examined by doctors and physios and scans and all like that and it becomes kind of a, a self-perpetuating self-obsession with 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 their bodies and how it's functioning and how it's working and it can I, you'd imagine it could it can impart or, or uh, sort of exacerbate a degree of paranoia about their bodies about their systems and uh, should i take this injection should i take this yeah. jab you know yeah um you know the point i'm making there. i would think that's entirely true yeah i would think that's entirely true as well and absolutely mm-hmm. an aspect of this we're going to take a very short break tommy conlon from the sunday independent rory o'connor of the irish independent staying with us the Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. 
Welcome back. So Tommy Conlon of the Sunday Independent is uh, with us down the line and Rory O'Connor is here in studio of the Irish Independent. Just, uh, well, a few different pieces. Just a quick mention, for instance, of Paul Rowan with Desi Baker in the Sunday Times on the back of Peter Schmeichel's new autobiography. Paul Rowan says it skims over uh, his fractious relationship with Roy Keane which is a disappointment actually I would have thought that's one of the key selling points Peter I mean I'm not to be your publisher but uh, one story concerned Desi Baker from Dublin an apprentice at the club in the mid 90s while attempting to uh, break through as a striker at Old Trafford Baker was designated boot cleaner so uh, he's spoken to Paul Rowan here on the second or third time I was in the first team changing room I uh, brought the boots and I was leaving and Schmeichel called me back saying Irish because he didn't know my name Baker said he said the boots weren't clean enough he also wanted tea and toast so at that point Roy Keane stood up and said don't call him Irish his name is Desi and get your own tea tea and toast and then uh, Baker chats for the rest of the piece just about I suppose the culture which we all know about at football clubs back in the 90s in particular and I'm sure before that as well the rough treatment that could come your way and they mentioned the Gary Neville um, class 92 story I think it was Skulls wasn't it who was putting a tumble dryer they don't name the player here but I think Paul Skulls was putting a tumble dryer and it was turned on briefly at one point uh, Desi Baker talks about how if you did something wrong in one instance he forgot to clean some boots I was stripped of my boxer shorts I was painted in black boot polish took me hours of scrubbing to get it off and my skin was red raw that was done by second year apprentices there wouldn't be first team players getting involved in that sort of stuff and he spent uh, three years at Manchester United 94 to 96 after being spotted by Nobby Styles while playing for Stella Maris in the Milk Cup against uh, Manchester United of Ferguson he said he really liked him uh, Ferguson uh, got him to the club by saying you're the best we're the best you're signing for us and uh, he remembers Ferguson as kind hearted he said too, Keane too had a warm side to him and as for Schmeichel, Baker did not take it personally. And he's currently um, in Port Arlington in County Leash at the moment. These days, Desi Baker running the, a soccer school. Uh, so, I mean, look, Tommy, not a, an hour goes by in the media without a Roy Keane story, good or bad. This goes into the good column. Yeah, yeah, that most complex of, of, of <laughs> men, uh, human beings, uh, Roy. But uh, I, I think in this case, the, the more salient, um, I suppose, um, messages is that 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 uh, it's I, I presume things have changed i don't know rory if you're more tuned into what's happening in dressing rooms and these days but um uh, that those old initiation rights the rights of passage type of thing you know the ritualized kind of humiliations or embarrassments of young fellas in this adult world and 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 uh, it was almost part of how you would be accepted you'd be put through some sort of right of uh, vague humiliation or actual humiliation or embarrassment or somehow and then uh, and if you took it like a good sport you're one of the lads then and you're part of the crack and you probably did the same thing to the next gender to the next batch of young fellas that came through and there's something quite victorian or even dickensian about what desi baker describes uh, about being covered in black shoe polish and all that kind of carry on and um, there's lots of episodes documented in uh, from old, old players. I think even if memory serves, uh, Eamon Dunphy has something about her in his in his only a game book, and it goes way back in time that whole that those whole rituals that uh, used to go on, and not just in football clubs, but 
you know, building sites, offices, but particularly building sites, you know, some young apprentice lad landing in on his first day and being being uh, sort of being made a fool of, really, and being embarrassed and all that thing, and uh, as a way of seeing, well, is this lad, will this lad pass muster? Will he be one of us? Is he one of the gang? And all that kind of stuff that went on. I'd imagine, and you'd hope, that things are a little bit more holistic and a little bit more sensitive these days. You would hope so. Singing a song seems to be the yeah, main the, ritual now. They seem like certainly, you know, I, Adam Byrne scored two tries for Leinster yesterday and, and spoke afterwards in peace for tomorrow about how supportive everyone had been to him and how, like, and I, I keep hearing how uh, holistic these um, these dressing rooms are now. I think they're, they're, while there's still a lot of slagging, there's also an awful lot of Instagram goes on, a lot of, a lot of TikTok they uh, do dance routines more than, you know together more than they they try and uh, abuse each other i think a lot of this uh, the kind of um hazing rituals certainly in 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 the dressing rooms i'm familiar with have disappeared to some degree although i think there's still pressure from senior players to do certain things on a night out when you start off and things like that so um but yeah i think the i think this it's probably a little bit more sanitized than it was in the 90s hmm. toughen you up i think some That's the idea. Uh, perverse form of bonding and also toughen you up. Was but then you hear the players come out of that and say the players now are too soft and that we have to kind of yeah. go back to that. And I don't know if that's necessarily the case. It's kind of, a, I mean, it seems very caveman stuff really at this stage. Mm. I mean, whether, I don't know, obviously I'm not there, so I don't know. But in that Class of 92 documentary where they were talking about some of the initiations and the treatment, they say they put a stop to that, certainly at Manchester United. They thought, well that kind of has to go now so geez, yeah. you, you would think another 20 years on well like imagine being Desi Baker imagine Roy Keane hadn't been there to, to, yeah. to stand up for Desi Baker and he had had to go and humiliate himself in front of an entire dressing room of players that he'd looked up to as a kid to go and make tea and toast for Peter Schmeichel just because he he just decided he wanted to bully the young kid that day it's pretty there's a story like I, it, I'd heard that story before I think Mark McCadden had an interview with Desi Baker where this came up a couple of months ago and right. um, I did when I read it this morning I was like god I've, I've heard this before quite recently but it, it, I think it might be a longer piece but I think this deserved a longer piece it's one of those it's a pity it's in the day of the Ireland-Azerbaijan game I find with some of the Sunday Times stuff it does tend to get squeezed um, because of their, their, their move to a more compact edition and I think there's like Desi Baker had an unbelievable career outside of Man United like that it almost there's about two thirds of a story that could have been told and he's obviously well able to tell it as well mm-hmm. um, maybe he'll, Paul will, will, will revisit it at a, at a later date but it's a yeah there's a couple of good anecdotes there but I think there could have been more Desi um, he was a bet noir of bows for a long time so I've quite familiar yeah. with his story but I'm sure a lot of people aren't and he lived in a, the League of Ireland in a very interesting time I'm sure he's a couple of good stories to tell about that Shelburne dressing room as well uh, I'm but sure. Uh, you know, Sorry, Tommy. Uh, uh, on the upside of it, um, I suppose, uh, uh, kind of, uh, we shouldn't underestimate that the, those those lads from those generations too. I mean, they had unbelievable crack as well, and some of those stupid japes that go on in dressing rooms and uh, and on training grounds. And uh, you remember the story Johnny Giles told about. Jack Charlton going off to the Jacks and a couple of the lads throwing in a, a bucket of cold, ice cold water in yeah. on top of it. Uh, and like, uh, there's fellas from all sorts of dressing rooms, from all sorts of sports who look back with great fondness on some truly hilarious kind of fun and games and japes and things that most maybe people in, in Civvy Street might think are a bit, were certainly silly and immature, but were actually hilariously funny and yeah. fondly remembered, you know? No, 100%, 100%. And from memory, Charlton walks back into the dressing room and points at Giles straight away and says, I know it was you. I think he may have been right, right as well. I think he may have been right. Yeah. Um, on the rugby front then, so 
Rory, I'm sure obviously with your rugby hat on, you're looking around for various bits and pieces. Bernard Jackman has uh, stepped into the Neil Francis breach in the Sunday Independent these days. Although Neil Francis's diaries from kind 1991 are carried Francis kind of sorry, yeah. kind of ties into what we're saying about like players being, you know, that maybe things were more interesting back in the day. And and he, what he does is he kind of starts off by. Um, Talking, you know, go, talking about Willie Anderson's autobiography, which is out at the moment, and I'm I'm about two thirds, maybe three quarters of the way through it. I know Tommy was helped Brendan Fanning his ghostwriter with the proofreading of it, and I'm sure will attest to the fact that it's absolutely brilliant. It's one of the best yeah. movie books I've read in yeah, uh, probably since Brendan's last book, to be honest. But it's it's as autobiographies go, it's it's really really superb. But it kind of gives. Um, Paul the kind of the thought that you know because we, Brendan was sitting at the table with Willie Anderson um, in his house up in, up in uh, near Maherfeld and um, he was talking about the time that he was locked up in Argentina for, I shouldn't laugh it was a pretty harrowing experience but he was locked up in Argentina for three months um, because of a jape you know uh, of the type that maybe we, we, we think that the current generations don't get up to even though they probably do um, that went wrong and he ended up being locked up by the Argentinian junta and I won't spoil the story because it's the first two chapters of the book but um, jape by the way just for anyone listening was he just nicked a flag he nicked a flag yeah, yeah 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 so the um so but he's sitting at the table telling the story and he goes oh, well I have the letters if you want to see them and, and Brendan's eyes lit up because yeah. he had the letters he'd written to his then girlfriend now wife which gave him a window into it and, and, and that, that Paul Kimmage then goes well what about like, you know he delves into Neil Francis diaries as a player and and kind of goes through them, just basically publishes them you know as, as they were and, and kind of gives a little bit of information about them and what he's saying is that basically that Neil Francis and, and Willie Anderson Gave, give more colour through these diaries and these kind of contemporaneous accounts than we're getting from, from current players now I think and he, he, I think he's encouraging Neil to, to go and write a book because he's got the you know he's more there's a line he has from Willie Anderson's interview with Keith Duggan in Yesterday's Irish Times that says although he still loves rugby uh, Willie Anderson sometimes struggles to recognise the game that was for most of his adult life an obsession we are now producing robots robots cautions the man who uh, was about nothing if not personality as a rugby player and you know that's the, you know the idea is that people of Willie Anderson and Neil Francis' generation had more personality lived more of a life than these academy graduates who were in the game mm. um, I'm not sure if that's fair maybe we just don't see as much of the personality of some of the players that are there I know Tommy's working on Keith Earls or has Keith Earls book ready to go I'm sure Keith Earls has a, a serious personality that's waiting to come out in that book you know there's the, the, I just don't think we're seeing it as much but yeah I mean uh, there's no way Neil Francis's diary would get through a media officer now I've ghosted players columns during tournaments and I did Rob Kearney's in the 2013 Lions tour and we had to send it to the media officer and anything interesting was taken out and that's oh, just, of course. Well, like, just the way it is so like to get you know a sense of Neil Francis's uh, 1991 World Cup diary which I think Paul Kimmage worked on yeah, he did. Uh, with them and spent time with them after every game for instance again that just wouldn't happen now like he's talking here about the match against Zimbabwe and Kieran Fitzgerald in his speech like lines like this would not make it through anymore he says of uh, Fitzgerald in his speeches he's like Hitler <laughs> he starts off slowly and then stops to purse his lips then he takes off again winding it up now lifting the tone in his voice staring at you he does it's incredible and on he goes but I mean lines like that are not making it through uh, 30 years later for instance and it's full of colour it's full of good stuff from 1991 it's quite long it's across two pages here like even God talk about how much the game has changed so he's he's writing here on Thursday October 10th and he's saying, what will I get out of this World Cup? A sore, bloody leg. Like even that, again, already, if we're there, drawing the red line through things, that's going. Uh, that there's no dosh doesn't bother me, because of course they were amateur then. No, it does bother me. The World Cup 
gave us three tickets for each game. That's disgraceful. Who do they think they are? Who do they think we are? I work for a company called Gatehouse Leasing. My boss, John Walsh, was flying over to Edinburgh for the match, asked me for six tickets. I couldn't help him. Had already promised my location to an aunt and uncle who were taking the game in as part of their holidays. And my girlfriend, John, wasn't put out. He uh, went off to an intermediary broker and was given the tickets. There you go. That's six tickets. That really annoys me. I've been busting my gut playing and training since May. How can this bloke who has nothing to do with the team get six tickets? And just goes on to talk about all the... uh, corporate types who get their tickets for free and how disgusted he is and he says uh, they don't give a damn about us I missed five weddings this summer all very good friends but there's no question of asking Fitzy look can I just take off this one or can I just take off for this wedding I had no summer this year all my holidays were taken up at rugby April, May, June, July when this is over we have five league matches in November then the Interpros then five nations championships and in between league and cup matches and then the tour to New Zealand at the end of it all what do you get? And that's his entry for the 10th of October. So you just, you're just you not going to get that in uh, 2021, I don't think. Um, so that's uh, page 12 and 13, or page 10 and 11, rather, across those two pages, his uh, diaries from 91. Rory, Bernard Jackman is um, incredibly, anytime you listen to him, he's so in touch with the modern game and how it works. So, for instance, I wouldn't have known really any of this stuff that he's talking about today. In effect, he's talking about the contract strategy in Irish provinces. He's wondering if it leaves the door open for clubs elsewhere outside of the country to swoop in and to take really good Irish players, maybe somewhere between 18, 19 and 21, 22. Because at that stage, what he's saying is the, the Leinster don't give contracts as early as they do in other countries. They have sub-academies. And these sub-academies are, he says, like uh, nurseries where effectively you don't get paid anything, but you're expected to train incredibly intensively. So there are 30 sub-academy players who train in Donnybrook, while those who are in the actual academy, they train at UCD in the high-performance facility there with the actual team. And then he said decisions on the sub-academy players' futures are usually made around the time that the Irish under-20s play. And he says academy contracts come in, they're usually for three years. So he said you could go all the way to 2021 and then you might get an academy contract and you might actually get your first professional contract at 23. Now he said financially that is really tough for a lot of players and he he lists a couple of examples of younger players who financially couldn't afford to do that. And he recommended them, for instance, to Bristol and Bristol picked up a young player and there was a a Welsh example as well, young player picked up. So he wonders if this is the best policy necessarily and maybe maybe it favours kids from wealthier families who can afford to have a crack at being in the sub-academy for two, three years. Um, Brilliant piece. I didn't know any of this was going on. Great insight. Yeah, um, I think... While I enjoyed the diaries and stuff, I have a tolerance. My my nostalgia uh, threshold was reached during lockdown, and I still haven't come down. I'd much rather read th- like this. Is it's really well constructed by Bernard. It starts off with kind of a in in goffs at at the um, at the horse the horse sales and a bit you know a bit a bit of color with, and then goes into the nitty gritty and there's really good detail. There's good analysis and there's good examples of where things are maybe going wrong and basically what he's saying if you read between the lines is that Leinster in particular are relying on the wealth and status of their young players to keep them at at arm's length for a certain amount of time and the lure of the jersey so if you come if you're the best player they they can go right the four or five best players in St Michael's will want to play for Leinster so much that they will put up with this not being paid basically until they're 21 and then when they're 21 they're really only take or 20 or 21 they're only taken in on these academy 
so there's the first sorry first year academy contract and then you get second year third year and then you're given your full contract at like 22 or 23 and you won't be in our like a contracted century contracted Ireland player if you're good enough until you're 20 unless you're James Ryan until you're 6 or 27 which is kind of crazy and what it's doing is it's it's almost saying to the kids from le- who have lesser means um well I don't know what it's saying to them it's, it's there's no real place for them in in that system now you're kind of relying on UCD and Trinity to give them scholarships so that they can kind of get through college and have somewhere to live during that point and then they get into the academy if they're good enough but like if there's 30 kids in, in the sub academy um, and they're not getting paid and they're being asked to turn up every day and do all the things that an, that an academy or that a professional player do it's quite unfair if they're from a, a background of lesser means now Leinster are lucky that they sit on top of the this production line which comes from the best demographics in the country in terms of wealth so mm. that they can afford to do it but you're seeing examples like Luca Bertie Newman and Carl Martin who've decided to go elsewhere Luca Bertie Newman has gone to uh, Bristol as you mentioned on a three year deal Carl Martin's gone to Montpellier yeah. no harm in seeing Irish guys uh, go off say, and experience something is, different is, is, there, is there an argument here so look I take the human cost I take the stress like he mentions as you said Lucas Bertie Newman who's been in Ireland and and uh, He's, he's, he grew up in Chile but he's been here a long time and the reality of being in a sub-academy hit him financially and he you know his dreams were less likely so Bernard Jackman himself organised a trial from at Bristol Bears and unsurprisingly they picked him up straight away thought he was great and Carl Martin going to Montpellier I get the stresses on them and there's a certain unfairness on them however if other clubs and Jackman's point is other clubs overseas have maybe spotted a weakness in our academy system. Yeah. Is it the end of the world if nope. Lucas Bertie Newman and Carl Martin are taken overseas, developed by other clubs, make the breakthrough there, and then if Ireland really want them back, they offer them contracts and get them back? Like Tommy Bowe was the best value well, player the RFU had for decades. Well, last year, Jack Crowley, who was the third choice out half at Munster now, last year he was the fourth choice behind JJ Hanrahan. Ronan O'Gara came in for him and made him an offer to become one of the top two outhalves at La Rochelle and he turned him down to stay at Munster where he's now still the third choice I think he's on the bench against the Scarlets today I would argue that Jack Crowley should have gone and played for Ron Nogara and clocked up 20-30 games in the top 14 a season and then come back to Munster at 24-25 if that's what he wants to do or 23 and become you know unchallenged because he would have a really good bank of experience so I think these players will benefit from going abroad but like in the case of Luca Bertie Newman he's from Chile Anyway, so he's like his 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 connection to Ireland is really through the fact that he went to school here. He sounds like he's a potential Ireland international. He's now going to be a potential England international. Maybe he'll play for Chile. You know, he's definitely a loss to the system. Carl Martin could play for France. You know, this is modern rugby. He's gone at nineteen or eighteen or nineteen. If he stays in Montpellier for four or five years, he'll become GIF qualified, which means he and if he's successful, he'll then come into the French system. You know, so like that's the risk is that you're losing players to other nations. But I do think that you could they, they, these players will benefit from the experience of going abroad. And there's something cosy about the Leinster Academy in particular it doesn't seem to stop players developing but a lot of them still live with their parents until they're 24, 25 they go to UCD they live in the the Dublin 4 area they go to UCD they train in UCD with Leinster they stay with their mums and dads their dinner's cooked for them every day they're in quite a very very much a comfortable bubble and I don't know if that mitigates them against them later in their careers when they're asked to make decisions for themselves on, on, on the pitch 
but I would argue that someone like Carl Martin or Will Hickey who's gone to the Ospreys will really really benefit from getting out of their, out of their comfort zone at 18 or 19 and going off to a different culture and, and trying to thrive so it's a really I think it's a really thought provoking piece from Bernard and it's you know it's as you say it shed light on an area of Irish rugby that um, you know a lot of people wouldn't have known him I, I've known bits and pieces of it I think he's pulled it together really well yeah thoughts Tommy <clears throat> is it just a basic question of oversupply probably and that Leinster do not have the capacity to absorb all this talent that's coming through yes is, is, uh, uh, I, I, I'm just putting that out just wondering about that uh, Rory but if, Joe, there's, uh, if there's a gap there I don't understand why Munster and Connacht and Ulster are not well, coming exactly. in and offering these guys full contracts at 18 and going well look Leinster are only going to give you you know the, yeah. the, the, the basic but we'll give you a full wage and if you come down to us and like I know they're not supposed to be bidding against each other, but it's, you know, Munster and Leinster, Munster and Ulster and, and Connacht could force Leinster's hand here, but they don't seem to be doing it. Instead, they're going abroad. So, but it, yeah, there is definitely like they're they're in a very strong position, Leinster, because if if one of these guys goes, there's another fella who's probably just as good as him. Although apparently, I haven't seen Luca Burton Newman, but I believe he's quite different, and he would be quite different to sure. There'll the be the odd, there'll be the odd exception, but in yeah. the main, Tommy, yeah, there's another fella behind him in fifty are coming through. It's an incredible profusion uh, of talent when you think, you know, go back to the amateur days of the 80s and into the early 90s where uh, Ireland uh, traditionally struggled to field what you would consider to be 15 proper international level players on the international team. There often seemed to be a couple of players who weren't quite at that level. And now there's this absolute profusion of talent coming through. And you'd wonder, as Rory was saying, there can it be redistributed or recycled through the Irish system first and failing that then that they maybe emigrate or go, go abroad, you know. Um, do you know this, another thing that strikes me about it there, Rory touched on as well, is, is, is it's interesting, and I suppose it's almost a taboo subject to touch on, but the class distinction, if you take it historically in soccer, uh, the traditionally Irish, talented Irish young footballers didn't really, or their families apparently, prioritise their education. And they were happy to see their kids go to England at 16 and take their chances. Whereas in, I suppose, putting it crudely, the more middle-class environs of uh, rugby union in this country, uh, the parents are still very concerned that their talented young rugby player gets his degree, gets his education, goes through the university system as well, uh, as Rory alluded to there, vis-a-vis uh, -vis UCD, and that they're not quite all putting their eggs in that one basket of the professional career. Yeah, it's true, it's true. And I suppose, look, it was just uh, so the done thing in football. Like, if you didn't go at a young age, then really you had no chance. Whereas in rugby, mm. it was possible to do both. Although it was interesting, we had Jamie McGraws, he played for Ireland last night, and he had clubs uh, around him, and his parents said, no, 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 you're doing, you're leaving certain, that's that. So yeah. maybe maybe it's changing the insanity of sending a 14-year-old off yeah. to a different country. Can't with Brexit. Yeah, well, yeah, Brexit has changed things for sure. Uh, we'll take a short break, fellas. A couple more stories to get to in a moment with Tommy Conlon and Rory O'Connor here in the paper review. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Now you're welcome, Max. So we're going to race through a couple of stories before we wrap up. We have Tommy Conlon from the Sunday Independent and Rory O'Connor of the Irish Independent with us. So a couple of quick things. Obviously, the uh, Newcastle takeover has dominated the last couple of days in the UK when it comes to their football, and it's all over the sports pages. So you've 
Oliver Holt in the mail going to town on things like the word murderers used uh, in that headline. David Walsh, back page of the Sunday Times. Uh, within the Sunday Times, you have a piece by Matt Lawton, Martin Ziegler and Matt Hardy. Sam Wallace in the Sunday Independent slash Telegraph. So any piece, Rory, impress you or catch your eye or make a point you thought was worth reiterating here? I, I, th- I, I think Ollie Holt and Sam Wallace are both very good. I think... I think it's really interesting to see how this story is going to be covered over the coming months. There are already, whether it's Amanda Stavely or whoever's doing their PR, you can see that they're trying to bring journalists on side. They're giving them transfer information. They're giving them access. There's a, the Sunday Times have a kind of a inside the deal, that kind of athletic style piece where you've got like, you know, this is what happened when. And, and you know, there's, there's, it's, it's kind of thrilling because you're inside the room and all that sort of stuff. But you've got to keep pulling back from it and and talking about the House of Sa- Saud and all of the and Jamal Khashoggi. Like it has to keep coming back to that. It has to come back to LGBTQ rights. It has to come back to um, women's rights within Saudi Arabia. Same as it should be about Man City and it's same as it should be about PSG and the World Cup in Qatar. Because this is once you start talking about transfers and fantasy football, and I can understand why Newcastle fans are getting carried away because their team is going to potentially be up there with the best teams and playing Champions League football and stuff. But from a journalist's point of view, I think that that you have to keep asking the questions and banging the drum because it's too important. And yeah. otherwise, sports washing wins. It's very hard to do because in a couple of weeks' time, we'll be in here. And Newcastle may have made their signings, and we'll be talking about who's playing well and you know who's who's making the mark and what's going to happen with Jeff Hendrick and all that sort of stuff that we do because that's what we do on a daily basis and it becomes normal and once it becomes normal this is what Sam Wallace says you know once as time goes by the headline is peace as time goes by the stains will fade because we'll become used to it and we'll stop talking about it and you know I think it's up to people like Sam Wallace Miguel Delaney does brilliant stuff on this I am um, Ollie Holt is very strong on it today to keep bringing it back to this break, keep bringing it back to the ownership keep reminding the Newcastle fans of who owns their club like Newcastle fans don't care that's the that's what's so interesting about this like I'll just that picture I show it to you there a couple of Newcastle lads in their jerseys and they've like uh, tea towels around their heads and then you see Saudi flags outside the stadium as well like you instantly buy loyalty from a huge number of those fans I don't want to say majority but you instantly get a huge bunch and like they don't care and they're pointing at Man They'll City defend you. they're They'll pointing defend. at PSG yeah you've got an army of people defending you it's amazing David Walsh like reminds people I don't think anyone really needs reminding but page 20 back page of the Sunday Times for instance you know he says uh, we write about Saudis uh, concerning human rights record and the response is yeah but what about Abu Dhabi and Qatar and I suppose what about her is a weak argument, but it is an argument nonetheless. Uh, they have both been allowed into the world of football, so the Saudis are far from the first here. He says, uh, indulge me for a moment as we remember Saudi dissident and journalist Jamal Khashoggi three years ago this month uh, lured into the Saudi consulate in Istanbul to collect papers he needed to clear the way to his wedding. Inside the building, 15 agents of the Saudi government waited. They strangled Khashoggi and dismembered his body. Powerful people did not like what he wrote and said. Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi crown prince, um, accused, obviously, of ordering it. He denied that. Uh, but accepted responsibility because it did happen on his watch. Although after its investigation, the CIA concluded that Bin Salman had ordered the killing. Uh, a couple of other pieces, uh, Tommy, you know, the, the Premier League have accepted some kind of claim that the Saudi prince and the royal family won't be directly involved in proceedings, which obviously is a complete farce and it's, it's called out for the farce that it is in the Sunday Times. All the strong journalism and all the calling out of this situation 
uh, across the last number of days and in the papers today makes next to no difference ultimately as uh, the headline on Ollie Holt's piece says even murderers are allowed in if they're rich enough well, to go back to your previous point about um, this um, um, sort of um, suggestion that uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, uh, Mr. Bin, is it Bin uh, Salman? Yeah. Um, uh, and that there will be a sort of, uh, what do they call it? Uh, um, is it a the Chinese wall or the, 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 that, the, that they use in corporate speak mm-hmm. uh, the, of separation to, uh, to prevent any uh, impression of impropriety? And um, there was a very good piece in the Financial Times yesterday and um, in which uh, that particular issue about, uh, well, is it the Saudi Public Investment Fund or is it um, uh, Mr. Um, Sir, give me his name again, please, Joe, will you? Uh, the Mohammed bin um, Salman. Salman. Sorry, yeah. my apologies. No, you're fine. Um, and uh, there's a quote. Uh, uh, it needs strong language. Actually, language is important here. It goes back to what Rory was saying about not losing sight of the fundamental issue here. And uh, the, the quote from the Financial Times yesterday, uh, one paragraph says, but there are a few details as to how these assurances of separation work in practice. Amanda Stavely said that the public investment fund was, quote, an autonomous, commercially driven investment fund, which would make decisions alongside her and fellow investor Jamie Rubin in the running of the club, to which a person with knowledge of the negotiations said to the Financial Times, that is utter bollocks. Um, there is no separation uh, between uh, the political between the political powers in Saudi Arabia and and the owners and the ownership of Newcastle United, and to emphasise that uh, this this thing about language and clarity. Oliver Holt, I think, deserves a lot of maybe, maybe, and there's some excellent work across the British newspapers as you'd expect today. Uh, but just for the unfiltered power and fierceness of his language. I like what Oliver Holt has done. And he also makes the point in passing about Jamal Khashoggi, that journalism, including football writers, uh, cannot be allowed to forget it. And that if we're if we're supposed to have any sort of collegiality at all and solidarity, no matter how far flung our, our colleagues may be around the world, that we owe to Mr. Khashoggi to remember him and not to trivialise it in any way. And um, and and on a broader point, that struck me about that when the news first came out about what happened to Jamal Khashoggi in the uh, embassy in Turkey, naturally. The whole world was there was there was uh, absolutely everyone was like shocked at the at the sort of medieval barbarity, the inhumanity of it. And then in the three years since, it kind of there's this process of normalization starts to happen where we absorb it into our consciousness and into a, into the I suppose the world world consciousness. We 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 know what happened, and that initial revulsion. Uh, sort of starts to fade and, and it mutates into a kind of a unconscious, unbidden normalisation. Whereas, whereas now, three years later, we're no longer actually shocked by the details, the savagery and the cruelty and the inhumanity of what happened that day. 
we so it's suddenly it slowly fades and um and we reprocess it and and in that reprocessing it unconsciously we normalize it and 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 that's why someone like what Hort wrote today i, I consider it to be important and powerful and retaining the clarity at the at the heart uh, of this otherwise big big story yeah to give you a sense of how he's writing about this so of the premier league He's uh, saying, you know, be under no illusion. Premier League cares only about money. There are no core beliefs other than money. There are no principles other than money. Uh, Like Gordon Gekko's Wall Street, it's a place where greed is good. Murderers are welcome if they are rich enough. And remember that the next time they try one of their rainbow laces campaigns, by the way, knowing what they know about Saudi Arabia's attitude to LGBT rights, maybe the Premier League won't have the nerve. But if they do, remember, it's just for show. Remember, it's just a commercial move. They don't actually care about LGBT rights. If they did, they wouldn't allow Saudi Arabia to own a club. It's the money, stupid. We knew all this anyway. So, yeah, you're not wrong. He's not wrong. Um, so that's uh, How do we handle right it across though, the pages. How do we it going forward? Say again, Tommy? How do we handle it? Yeah, How I do don't we... know. I don't know, actually. I don't know. I, don't I, know. I, I suspect, unfortunately, you can only write about the human rights concerns so often and in a year's time, it's not mentioned as much. Yeah. Uh, sorry, in six yeah. months' time. In a, year, in, in, in a month's time, it just dies down and it gets, a, it gets a passing reference as it does with Man City or PSG from time to time, but... I think that's yeah. just the reality, isn't it? What can you do? Can we have a... I was saying during the week, do you have a ticker going along the screen at all times to say, you know, I know we're talking about Newcastle now, but we do conten- condemn the actions of their owners. I mean, like, you can't say it at every moment that you're talking about Newcastle. No. And they'll make a managerial appointment that will be interesting and they'll make transfer moves that are interesting and then they'll be on the rise and they'll be taking on different clubs and then like it'll probably come up when they play Man City you know we'll probably be comparing the two owners human rights yeah. records and it's just grim and it's going to ruin like it makes life I mean if you're I don't know how fans of English teams are feeling today as you know the ones that aren't owned by oligarchs um, but they're just getting further and further away from ever being able to see their team win mm-hmm. because like the money that's involved like a state should not be allowed on football clubs whether they're benevolent you know whether it's the, the, the kind of sovereign Wealth Fund of Norway uh, or the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Saudi Arabia, like that maybe was just where the Premier League needed to draw, draw the line. Like you know, club ownership has never has always been a little bit murky. You look at like you know, sheriff should be a great news story, but actually once you start digging, it's not great. Yeah. Um, but there's something, yeah. Once it gets to state level, um, it really shouldn't be, shouldn't be, it should never have been allowed. And and this maybe it could have been a tipping point, but it doesn't. It's they've just been waved on through. So um, we're running out of time. Just to give a couple of pieces, quick mentions. Uh, Martin Shovlin caught your eye. Yeah. Donegal footballer who is uh, still lining out in fairly <laughs> dire circumstances. Yeah, this is Jason Byrne in the sun. Um, yeah, he's 61 and he's playing club football. Uh, he turned up to watch a game uh, with his beloved Nave Ulton. Um, but there were short players I think it was just, it was the second string and there were short there were only 13 players a 14th turned up but three players uh, himself uh, um, his brother Colm who's 61 and Liam Kennedy who's 57 borrowed some gear from their fellow players to save the club from a 200 euro fine mm. um, and they held they held uh, the opposition to a 111 to 110 feet which mm. or sorry defeat which is pretty good uh, he lined out for Donegal between 1988 and 1997 
but as uh, Jason points out he never thought he'd be still kicking ball in 2021 no. I mean it's a funny story it's an interesting story it's not really funny once you start thinking about That's why it's like you know it's that rural decline I think clubs felt a real boost after COVID a lot of people had moved home working from home and stuff and, and I think there was a real lift once fo- club football got going but I presume those people have started going back to the gravitating back to the cities now that offices are open the construction sites are open and all of those things and suddenly you're left to the situation I, I'm reminded of the Cross Midland story a couple of years ago when they played against a couple of lads in jeans and Ushie McConville lost a head um, I'm not sure if that's the same g- g- genesis of the story but this really seems like there's just not enough young men in that town to play yeah. football and that's really really sad yeah no totally I had the same initial reaction Tommy initially got quirky story isn't this gas and then really you realise it's, it's capturing a decline in so many towns around the country yeah, albeit that there was, um, it, it is a, is what it is one of the great old GA standby yarns of the fella in his fifties or sixties, years <laughs> or even seventies, being press ganged into action for the sake of the club. You know, <laughs> it, it nearly goes back to Canon Sheehan, uh, or was it uh, who wrote the book about Matt the Thresher and uh, and um, what's what's the, 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 that famous book? Not uh, what the hell was it back in the eighteen seventies or eighteen eighties? Who does it for the pride of the little village? And and here we are in. Uh, in, in 2021 and and that same old same old theme comes comes through again and and uh, it is an old uh, hardy annual that one from the GA annals you know and uh, in fact I remember Martin Shovelin in 1992 when Donegal won the All Ireland Mar- if if I remember uh, someone could, could should correct me on this but if I remember Shovelin missed a late or failed a late fitness test yes. for the final it says that in the piece he missed the final it's some kind of injury yeah yeah. I was on the pitch afterwards and Donegal had pulled off one of the most improbable All-Ireland victories of all time to win their first All-Ireland title and of course uh, the pitch was invaded by uh, Donegal people I was on the pitch as well and Martin Shovlin was on the pitch and he was shouldered high and he was absolutely you know lifted up by his fellow county men and uh, everyone understood his anguish and empathy. it was a, a well outpouring of empathy and affection for him that he had missed out on the great day I think he was there in the civvies part of the backroom team or whatever right. and uh, I just have that image in my mind of Martin Shovlin um, being, being mobbed by his own people that day that beautiful day oh, in wow. uh, 1992 God amazing well he's still playing yeah. <laughs> and were you working or were you just on the pitch having having the crack um, no I just wandered onto the pitch um, uh, to have a look around sure at the down days you could you know you could walk onto the old sacred sward at any time really you know and no one passed much remarks <laughs> on you and uh, but it, it, it was it was a beautiful it was a beautiful occasion really you know uh, to see a first a team winning the All-Ireland for the first time and I really liked that Donegal team and it was part of that early 90s Ulster um, kind of insurgency yeah. or revolution but down and that really charismatic down team and, and then Donegal and then Derry fantastic yeah. scenes as well in 93 you know and, and maybe yeah. so actually I don't know if you're intended that might lead on to the uh, the Colm O'Rourke's piece about the um, about the um, yes he's re- he's he's fully fully yeah he's fully behind plan B like this isn't even a debate in his eye really he makes a yeah. convincing case I would say yeah, I think so too. Um, uh, albeit that talking about that Ulster, that glorious era in the in the late nineteen nineties, and uh, part of me for, for uh, obviously recognising all the arguments for change, a part of me would be sorry to see something like the Ulster Championship 
Ulster Football Championship uh, being consigned to history. Uh, it may be on its own steam. It's not enough to justify the status quo, but it, it's a marvellous championship. Like, and it's the real McCoy. It's the real deal. Yeah. It's serious sport. Like, no, it is. And um, and uh, uh, Munster is a joke, obviously. And uh, Leinster has become a bit of a farce with Dublin's dominance. But but that Ulster Championship, it's a precious thing to me. Um, I've always liked it. We've everyone has uh, who follows Gaelic football knows you, you're getting serious talent and serious preparation, and it's a proper serious sport. And a, a part of me will be sorry to see it go, even if it does have to go. Yeah, he makes the interesting point as well, O'Rourke. So he says Ulster might want to say no, but they should look at the big picture. There are four Ulster teams in the top division next year, two more in the second. Uh, so actually, more chances Ulster counties will be in the All Ireland quarterfinals. So mm-hmm. it, you know, it might help in the, in the long run. He says, can you imagine uh, Tyrone or Dublin travelling to Killarney in the bank holiday weekend in June for a game to decide quarterfinalists? He O'Rourke's uh, point basically is this is just a no-brainer. He says. Uh, the league part played across April, May and June. All-Ireland final at the end of August. After that, clubs would take over. If they don't vote for this proposal, then their delegates need a hosing down with ice-cold water. For years, these counties have been abandoned and didn't fight for themselves. Now they've been given a guilt-edged opportunity for self-improvement. And he says, uh, we can always go back to bigger teams beating the minnows by 40 points if anyone thinks it should be retained after we try this for a couple of years. It's hard to argue with it, really, Rory. Congress yeah, I mean, he, he makes the point that you know he had no truck with the Leinster title when he was or Leinster championship when he was winning it uh, with Mead, but really it was broken back then, and, and it's only gotten worse since. So he's, um, yeah, I, like I mean, the, the sad thing is that for all that the the points that are made are, are very valid, and and everyone I hear who advocates for proposal B or option B, whatever it's called, uh, makes like it's definitely the best option. I think anyone any. Um, anyone outside of the structures of the GA can see that but the, unfortunately the, the way it's all structured it seems to be leading towards a fudge and we may even go back to the, the old qualifier system which really you know it just diminishes what the championship could be when you see what it, when you see this option be and, and what the, the summer could look like from a GA perspective it's really disappointing to think that they're going to possibly go back to something either provincial or you know even provincial with the qualifiers like it yeah. It's not going to live up to its own potential. No, it's basically you have Division 1, 2, 3 and 4. Top five teams would qualify for Division 1 for the quarterfinal knockout stages. Three from Division 2 and then one each from Divisions 3 and 4 into the preliminary quarterfinals. So even Divisions 3 and 4, if you do well in those league divisions, you get a crack at knockout stages. And then there's Talton Cup for the bottom 16. So again, lots of games there across the summer for the lesser counties. So if you were to win the All-Ireland, by the way, you'd have 11 games or reach the All-Ireland final as well. You'd have a, a, yeah. a maximum of 11 games. Can I do you can make the point, Joe? Um, a part of me kind of um, switches off on uh, all this talk of championship structures uh, uh, comes up for conversation, yeah. which uh, which has done for twenty or thirty years, uh, uh, on and off. And um, well, you brought it up, I Tommy. S- I know, I know. <laughs> and uh, do you know what? A part of me thinks, no matter what they come up with, ultimately it's just rearranging the deck chairs a bit, because the 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 fundamental inequality will always be there unless unless they do unless they do something profoundly radical and that is the uh, distribution of talent that is the parish system the county system the sacred scripture of the GAA is there at the there there is the heart 
of the imbalance. And, and, and right? sorry, and how would you rip that up without money changing hands? What would incentivize players to leave, say, Dublin and go down to Leitrim? Here's the thing: that is uh, that is the that is the mass part of the equation to which I don't have. <laughs> okay, uh, but. Um, if they they built this institution on that fealty, that tribal loyalty to your parish and your county, and equally they baked into the very DNA of the, that institution massive inequality from day one, and the distribution of the demographic. Apart to me, as someone from Leitrim and who watched on television as as those Leitrim players were beaten, humiliated in Castlebar earlier this summer, which was very unpleasant to watch. Um, a part of me also thinks, oh, so why should, a, why should a young fella born in Leitrim, who happens to be an exceptional talent, why should his career be dictated to by his place of birth? Why should he not? It is the only sport I can think of where you're not allowed to reach your maximum potential depending on where you're born. It's true. Can't argue with it. It's, 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 it's terrible. And it is, as you said, so baked in that for that to change would be... Well, civil it, it war. Could, it could destroy. It could mm. destroy the institution, or it might liberate it. Who knows? Mm. But uh, to me, uh, okay, they may change the championship structures then, but you'll still have those those really, really deep inequalities based on the demographics and all that goes. No, with you that. will. You will for sure. Um, we're pretty much out of time. I just wanted to briefly mention, I know there's an interview you wanted to mention as well, Rory, in the Mail on Sunday with Elsa Desmond, excuse me. Um, I'll just briefly mention for a second, Jonathan Wilson, it was just a good piece on Louis van Gaal. 70 years of age at this stage. He's back managing the Dutch again for the third time because basically for the last couple of years they've had Gus Hiddink Danny Blind, Ronald Koeman who went off to Barca and then Frank de Boer at the Euros was terrible so Van Gaal is back in and uh, Wilson is sort of uh, making the point he has a grudging admiration for him because he's interviewed him a few times and they got into serious rows about tactics and Van Gaal went to all sorts of lengths to explain his tactics and really you know ultimately Wilson said it was great that in the world of bluffers and spoofers uh, who fear revealing too much he wants to go the other way and explain everything in depth but uh, he just has a good anecdote or two about Van Gaal at the moment at 70 with his team so for instance he says to a journalist who was asking him why he's not playing 4-3-3 at the moment this was just in the last uh, few days the journalist is nearly 60 has been covering football for a long for a long time for the Telegraph and Van Gaal said to him in the press conference I'm sorry to say it but you're just a journalist you want to implement your vision but you have no vision in football you have vision for a newspaper fantastic and then another example he goes up to a 20-year-old on the team and I'm thinking of this with Pearl Callum Robinson in mind uh, Euron Timber so he's caught on camera going up to Euron Timber in international camp who's 20 and uh, he shakes his hand and he says to him I'm vaccinated are you? and Timber says yeah me too and Van Gaal says thank goodness not a whoppy and then Wilson adds, Wappy is a Dutch word roughly equivalent to nutjob that tends to be used for conspiracy theorists. So Van Gaal is doing his bit for uh, vaccine hesitancy in the Dutch camp. 
I mentioned there to wrap up you uh, wanted to push people towards the Desmond interview yeah Elza Desmond who I wasn't aware of before that but I mean it's the weekly mention of Mark Gallagher and his his quest to go off piste and find um, you know interesting Irish sports people Elsa Desmond is our representative in Luge um, she's English born but has family from Bally James Duff and had previously rec- uh, represented Great Britain but is now trying to qualify for Ireland at the Winter Olympics but also is the basically runs the entire federation she created and now runs the Luge Federation of Ireland for one I, I'm sure it's got a proper name yeah. um, and it's just interesting uh, the, you know why she's done it it's an interesting story it's about 2,000 words and it's uh, yeah it's something different there wasn't a huge amount of women's sport in the paper either um, and yeah she's putting a lot of, she's also uh, in the final year of her medical degree while, also, while, while doing this as a pursuit she's 23 years old and um, doesn't quite get to the nub of why but um, you know she's obviously putting an awful lot into this so yeah. we, we wish her well and she talks about like as a doctor you see people coming in hurt or sick all the time so against the risks of the sport you know you you can do nothing and still get ill so I guess that informs her taking the risks on that sport by the way you would think the skeleton where you go down on your front at 140k per hour would be plenty of risk for anyone mm. who decided like actually you should do it on your back so you can't see where you're going is the way to go is uh, one of the real mysteries to me a sport but I, someone did and now we I don't think we're outward. I don't think we're conditioned to understand winter sports <laughs> in this country really um, but yeah no, she's had a couple of concussions too in the last in six years and um, yeah she's she says skiing is a more dangerous sport which it probably is although it looks it probably looks less so when you're watching it but uh, yeah. yeah just an interesting uh, interesting and, and different piece as, as Mark routinely comes up with yeah. on a weekly basis he sure does so I would have thought Joe it's a general rule of life that you're better to go in feet first rather than head first and kind of thing <laughs> well maybe well, I, I, I just like to see where I'm going at high speeds but I take your point <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I think as a general life motto, uh, it, it wouldn't, it, it, it ought not to be head first, Joe. I pass on that bit of advice to you anyway. <laughs> okay, I will take it as always. And by the way, best of luck with the Keith Earls book. So I know it's out very soon, as Rory mentioned. So um, fingers crossed and all that. Yeah, fingers crossed for it. It's uh, at the printers and it'll be published in uh, the 28th of October. And um, I think I can fairly say uh, Keith Earls has quite the story to tell yeah I've always suspected that I have to say so I'm really looking forward to it Same. Tommy Conlon from the Sunday Independent Rory O'Connor from the Irish Independent thank you both Thanks, uh, we'll take yeah. a short break that was the Sunday Papers the Sunday Papers on Off The Ball